from MPB Think Radio. This is Now You're Talking, and I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Hey, I'm thrilled to have our first guest, author Ben Cozon, to talk about his new political thriller, First Strike. It's a storyline that doesn't shy away from terrorism or national security. It's ripped straight out of the headlines. Later in the show, you may have heard of the movie Free State of Jones. The film was inspired by a man named Newton Knight, and Nick Lott, his great, 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 great grandson, will join us to reflect on Newton's legendary life. Our question today is this. What's the best way to celebrate someone's life who has passed? Call us at 877-MPB-RING to join the conversation or email me at marshall at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Obama is preparing to go to Dallas tomorrow for a memorial service. It's for the five officers killed in last Thursday's shooting. He'll be joined by former President George W. Bush. Separately, there have been protests this weekend against police brutality around the country. Hundreds of people have been arrested in Baton Rouge and in St. Paul. In Iraq, Defense Secretary Ash Carter has arrived for a visit with the prime minister and military officials. He says the U.S. will send 560 more troops to Iraq to support the Iraqi military. NPR's Alice Fordham reports he arrives as Iraqi forces, supported by the U.S.-led coalition, took a key airbase back from Islamic State. The base was retaken this weekend. State media report ISIS did not fight hard for the base and many of them fled, leaving their weapons behind. The base, called Karaya, is about 40 miles south of the ISIS-held city of Mosul, the last and largest major Iraqi city held by the group. Secretary Carter told reporters that this base will now be used as a logistics hub for Iraqi and coalition forces as they prepare to retake Mosul. Some Iraqi forces with U.S. support have already tried to push toward Mosul with limited success. But after victories in the western province of Anbar, more troops will now likely be deployed for what is sure to be a complex assault. Alice Fordham, NPR News, Beirut. The U.N. Security Council is urging the president and vice president of South Sudan to control their rival army factions and stop days of violence in the capital. Hundreds of people are believed dead. NPR's Afabia Quist Arkin reports the latest fighting jeopardizes a peace deal in South Sudan. After an emergency session Sunday on South Sudan, the U.N. Security Council expressed outrage at attacks that have hit U.N. compounds housing civilians in the capital, Juba, warning that these could constitute war crimes. Clashes have escalated in Juba since Thursday between forces loyal to President Salva Kiir Mayardit and his deputy and erstwhile adversary, Riek Machar. Both men have appealed for calm but there's concern they may not be in total control of their respective troops. UN Chief Ban Ki-moon is urging the rival leaders to order their forces to disengage, withdraw to their bases and respect the peace deal. Ophelia Quistarkton, NPR News, Accra. One of the two candidates campaigning to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is ending her bid. Andrea Leadsom dropped out of the contest to head the UK's Conservative Party and become Britain's Prime Minister. She is backing the remaining candidate, Theresa May. Theresa May carries over 60% of support from the Parliamentary Party. She is ideally placed to implement Brexit on the best possible terms for the British people. Leadsom stirred up controversy in recent remarks about parenthood, implying that, as a mother, she might be better prepared to lead the country. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 102 points. This is NPR. 
Campaign officials for Bernie Sanders say the Democratic presidential candidate will campaign with Hillary Clinton tomorrow in New Hampshire. NPR has learned that Sanders is expected to endorse Clinton tomorrow as well. With a week to go before the start of the Republican National Convention, the presumptive GOP presidential nominee is returning to the campaign trail today. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports Donald Trump is in Virginia for a policy speech on veterans' issues. Both Trump and his Democratic rival Hillary Clinton canceled appearances on Friday in the wake of the police shootings in Dallas that killed five officers and injured several more. Trump had planned to give a speech in Miami accompanied by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, a former rival who's considered a possible vice presidential pick. Today, Christie will join Trump at an event in Virginia Beach, Virginia. The area is home to several military bases, and Trump is focusing on veterans' issues. The event is closed to the general public. Trump will be holding a rally near Indianapolis tomorrow. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Hundreds of thousands of people in the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh are planting trees today. They hope to plant some 50 million trees over the space of 24 hours and set a Guinness World Record. Government officials have distributed saplings to people in an effort to help rebuild India's forest cover. The Associated Press says the current record is a little more than 847,000 trees planted two years ago in Pakistan. Again, on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrials are now up 106 points at 18,253. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Subaru, automotive partner of the National Park Service Centennial. Subaru encourages people to explore America's treasures and discover a national park adventure at findyourpark.com. Love, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Send your comments and questions to marshall at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking, and I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Happy Monday. I think we're all getting kind of used to trying to work today after having last Monday off, but it's good to be back, and I hope you had a great Fourth of July holiday. I know I did. I tell you what, we have got a great show today, but before we get going, I just wanted to say Sharita is off today. She's off working on her one-woman show, comedy show, that she'll be having next weekend. So we have in the house, Jay White is driving the bus. Hello, Mr. Jay. Hey, good morning. How are you? I've already messed it up. You have. You're doing great so far, I, though. It's the old theme. I don't know where the new theme <laughs> it is. It is, man. Sharita has it in a, pr- a password-protected folder somewhere in welcome, her kingdom. Welcome to 2014. <laughs> right. <laughs> a little throwback Monday. There we go. Uh, great show today. I, I'm really excited. Number one, we got author Ben Cohen, actually New York Times bestselling author yeah, Ben That's Cohen. a difference right there. I wanted to throw that title out there because he's definitely earned it. And he's a guy, actually, that I've interviewed two or three times before. And I owe him a stake. Because I always said oh. if he ever came to Mississippi for a book signing, uh-huh. that I would buy him a steak. So I've got another steak out on the table trying to get him <laughs> to come in here to Mississippi. Fantastic writer. And the reason I wanted to get Ben on, number one, I love his books. He's written six of them now. And his latest is First Strike. And it's really a great read. But, I mean, this is summertime. We're all looking for a good beach read. We're trying to find something to read. It's a little bit light. Although this book is pretty tough because it's ripped right out of the headlines. And it's about ISIS and about – it's it's a – a political military thriller and it's fantastic. So we'll have Ben on and I, you know, my Facebook feed is just lit up of people that have seen free state of Jones. Of course, it's about Newton Knight, which was for, from our own Jones County. 
And I, you know, I thought this was fantastic, but Nick Lott, a guy that I know that I've been following on Twitter since he was up at Ole Miss, is the great, great, great grandson of Newton Knight. And he'll be on to talk a little bit about his great, 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 great grandfather's legacy. God, that's hard to get that many right. greats in there. <laughs> okay, great to the fourth power. We'll just do there that. That'd be much easier to say. So looking forward to, to them being on, and it'll be great too. And I tell you, I spent the uh, last week, it was really tough for me, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, and I think this is where the question of the day will, will, will come in. I spent last week uh, burying my father. He passed away at the age of 81, and it was a very um, – it was a tough thing, but it's a really uh, celebratory thing also. I think the funeral was very upbeat and because and he was an incredible guy, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the question of the day is this. What's the best way to celebrate someone's life who has passed? And it has lit up social media. A lot of people have had some really great ideas and great suggestions on ways that they have celebrated people that they have known who have passed in the past. And so I, I think it's going to be some great conversations. And, of course, you can join the show at any time at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Sorry I had to catch my breath there because I'm just so excited to be back on a Monday. So, anyway, Ben Coase is coming up first, and then we'll have – Nick Lott on as well. So Jay, um, have we got have we got Ben yet, or are we still working on? Still that? waiting on that. Okay, yeah. very good. All right, so we'll get that on there. Uh, also, too, the latest news this is something I've missed. Uh, was of course Pokemon Go, and I know Jay's in there playing it right now. <laughs> I, I know. I still. I don't. Yeah. I, I know. I don't know the. Of course, I've never been a Pokemon guy. Yeah, it's, necessarily. It, 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 I, Liz is Liz, our call screener, is jumping up and down. She's doing a dance right now. She's excited about it. Very much so. Yeah. Let me tell you, within two days, 5.14% of all Android phones had this app on it within wow. two days. This thing has taken off. It's actually has taken off faster than Twitter ever did. I'm part of the 94. Yeah, me I too. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't have it yet. Me neither. I didn't even know about it until this morning. So I'm sitting there doing my cartoon ideas thinking, well, what can I draw about? And I'm sitting there reading about Pokemon Go. I was like, well, I guess I've been a little bit under a rock for the last few days. So, and usually, you know, that's why I had kids to keep me up on cultural things. Right. But they're not even really that good at it anymore because, like, my son's going, hey, Dad, i got this great band, new band. I said, oh, what is it? And he said, Nirvana. I said, mm, I don't know if that's a new band, buddy. So. <laughs> right. Well, it's new to him. Well, no, it's good, though, because yeah. I'm not having to listen to stuff in the car that absolutely kills me, you know, because he's like, I don't think anybody will listen to my, my music that's out today in 20 years. I said, well, I think you're right on that. So, But he, he likes all the music. But doesn't like. everybody say that, though? I mean, I, I, I hear today's pop music. Right. And I think to myself, there's no way that 20, 25 years from now, this is going to be memorable music. Right. But I am sure that 20 years ago, people heard stuff like Nirvana and the pop music of that day and thought, there's no way in 20 years that this is going to be, you know, culturally memorable music. But I guess we just adapt somehow or another. Right? I thought maybe Nirvana more than the stuff that was like big <laughs> when I graduated in 1986. <laughs> Right. It was like literally a synthesizer factory had blown up. Yes. That was, I mean, my son listens to some of the stuff from the 80s. A synthesizer like, factory full of hairspray. Yeah, we listened to the 80s channel one day, and Dad was like, no, no. That's ter <laughs> terrible, Dad. That's terrible. It's like, oh, anyway. So, but yeah, no, it'd be good. And, of course, obviously, the uh, news with, first, the shootings that were videotaped with the, 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 the two guys, one in Minnesota and one down in in Baton Rouge, that was just very tragic. And then, the, obviously, the shootings in Dallas, too. So that was very tough. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But Ben Coase is on the line. Ben, I tell you what, it has been too long, and I just want to let you know I owe you a steak. Hey, Marshall. Hey. You don't owe me anything, but thank you. I'll take you up on it. 
you, you really do need to get your book tour down this way someday. I know. I keep telling them, that, but I, I go where they send me, you know? <laughs> wow, it sounds like marriage for me. I don't know. It sounds very, very <laughs> familiar. Well, ben, ben, I tell you, it's great to talk to you under these circumstances, too, because I am absolutely loving First Strike, your latest book. Oh, thank you, Marshall. Appreciate yeah. that. And, and I got to ask you this because, um, you know, it's, obviously it's very ripped from the headlines and it, it deals with ISIS and America's involvement with ISIS. And, of course, Dewey and Dres is the is once again the hero in the story. But you write these books like a year previous, and yet your this storyline could be happening in the news tonight. How do you do that? Do you have a little crystal ball? No, I think part of it's just kind of luck and part of it's just, you know, I don't think it's all that prescient. Um, I, I just think it's, um, you know, some of these issues are recurring and continue to seethe. So the issue of ISIS, for example, uh, and really what this book is about is two things. The first is, what First Strike is about is two things. is A, the idea of our vulnerability to a soft uh, target attack on on U.S. soil by radical Islamists and where they don't just come in and blow things up, but in fact come in and occupy something for a little while. In the case of First Strike, it's a dormitory at Columbia University where I went. And the other thing that I've wanted to write about is the creation of ISIS. And even though I've fictionalized it, what I wanted to try and get at a little bit was the fact that we as Americans, not everyone, but but decisions that Americans made, critical decisions led directly to the creation of, of ISIS uh, and decisions that were made in Iraq following Saddam Hussein's uh, death and, and um, really led directly to the creation of ISIS. And I wanted to write a book about that. And so in First Strike, as you know, Marshall, uh, but, you know, it's about the way I fictionalize it is imagining a an arms for influence program where we we as Americans are fed up and, and don't know what to do, frustrated by the growth and continuing growth of radical jihad, especially in the Middle East and Europe. And we um, in every place we go and every, everywhere we spend money, it only makes it worse. And. The idea in First Strike is that there's a program within the Pentagon, a secret program, where we essentially try to find an up-and-coming Islamist with charisma uh, and, and management skills, basically, who can, uh, if we give him or her, the well, him, obviously, the money uh, and the arms, et cetera, the help, we, we can essentially pick a winner there and let that person emerge as the leading radical group uh, and and then um, essentially with a secret deal where they agree not to attack the United States, not to go after our allies like Israel, and in First Reich this backfires miserably. So, um, you know, I'm glad you like it. I'm glad you're reading it. And uh, I think, you know, it's it's been selling very well, and people seem seems to be resonating with people. So, Well, the, the first one was Power Down, and, of course, that was – 
you know, do Andreas's uh, debut in your character. And he's, he's, of course, a former member of the Delta Force. And a lot of people know a lot about the Navy SEALs, of course, especially since the Bin Laden raid. People don't know as much about the Delta Force, although if you think of SEAL Team 6, I guess they're kind of parallel to, to that. But Dewey, as a character, has really grown over the last six books. And I know that has to be fun for you, developing him. Yeah, no, it has, Marshall. I'm glad you noticed that. I, I think that there is a a larger plot line to, to his background. You know, when the when the first book begins, he is a he has been out of the United States for almost a decade. He had been in the in special forces, and then he uh, he was falsely accused of a crime, and he and of actually of killing his wife, which he did not do. He was kicked out of the military. He went on trial. He was acquitted in record time, but he was very bitter about the lack of support he received from his superiors and, and people who he had risked his life for. He went and started working in the oil industry, and you know, ten years down the road, it happens to be the he happens to be working on an offshore oil platform in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Colombia, where he is, uh, which happens to be the target of a of a terror attack. And so the, the, and, and it's, you know, they picked the wrong oil platform to go after and he fights to try and save it. And then he has to make a decision about what should I do? Should I come back and try and save, you know, I can help prevent this thing. I can help stop these terrorists, but I am really mad and bitter about the way my country treated me. And he basically realizes that it wasn't the country. It was the, the government and, the, and certain people. And so he risks his life in that book to come back and help stop this terrorist. And, and that book I was really trying to write about patriotism and how, you know, the real patriot is someone who has every reason to hate his country or his government. And he comes back and risks his life to help save it. And I think the larger thing about Dewey is he's got flaws. He drinks too much. He, um, he is prone to, uh, violence um with his enemies right. um and he um but the larger story is about his reconciliation with the united states and you know by the time this book comes along he is very you know he really is one of the um top people that is called on when when the odds are are against them someone who can improvise and who has creativity and and who figures out a way to make things work and is given a lot of leeway in what he does, both domestically and internationally. And so he's definitely fun to write, Marshall. I'll tell you, sometimes I'll be writing a scene and it'll write. It, I feel like I'm just a journalist and I'm taking notes on what this character that I've developed. It's almost like he, you know, it's he comes alive and I am sitting there just jotting down notes on on what he's doing or what he's saying, and it's it's a pretty uh, interesting and exhilarating feeling. I would probably buy Dewey a steak also, but just to keep him on my good side. We're talking with New York Times bestselling author Ben Coase about his new book, First Strike, which is fantastic, I might add. Thank you. You know, you and your research on this, and uh, you know, I know the writing process takes a while, but there is a scene, and I'm not going to give who it is just because I don't want to spoil it, but there is a, a major character in the book who has a massive heart attack, and you go through this whole process of how they keep this this character alive and the research on that must have taken you a while unless of course you snuck around and i didn't know it you went to medical school but you i mean it's it's amazing the detail that's throughout this book how do you i mean how long does it take you to research for one of these books 
you know, it takes a while. Independence Day, there was a lot of nuclear uh, science, nuclear weapons science and around the technology, and it ended up, that was my fifth book, and that ended up being incredibly complicated because what I didn't realize is, is just the, you know, how you look at the science behind a nuclear device or any kind of, it's so complicated and it's so based on the particulars of how how much, uh, you know, highly enriched uranium you have, what what is it enriched to, what are you doing? It was just so complicated. I remember after that book, I was like, what the hell did I do that for? <laughs> um but I, you know, and I talked to a lot of experts, and I was a fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and and really that was probably the most valuable experience that I had. In you know, I worked at the White House too, but the, but really working, being a fellow at the Kennedy School, I made so many connections there, and my connection to the school is ongoing, and so they have been incredibly helpful. So on that book, there is a one of the top nuclear. Uh, Nuclear. He's basically one of the top experts in the world in the politics behind nuclear science as it relates to terrorism, and it's you know it's, it's a fascinating subject. And he really helped me. And you know, on the heart attack scene in First Strike that you mentioned, I'm glad you liked it. Um, it's funny. Someone wrote to me and said that I had quote unquote jumped the shark with that scene. And the funny thing is that scene is actually <laughs> one of the ones that is really based every single word on how something would happen. And, and uh, it, so it, I was just kind of laughing at that comment. But I, um, with that one, I don't know if you knew this, Mark, but I had open-heart surgery four years ago. I did not know that. I will never forget the steak. Never mind. No, no, no. I'll get you it, some chicken. It wasn't health-related. It was something I was born with. Okay. And... Um, they discovered it when I was right after college. I actually tried to join the Navy SEALs, and I got in, um, though I didn't, you know, that's before you go out for what is really the hard part, so that's not necessarily saying a lot. It's saying a little bit, but um, but before they send you out to Grand Lakes or Great Lakes, I forget what it's called, they... They sent me, and they, you know, they send you to a hospital where they do a CAT scan, MRI, and all that, and they discovered I had this flaw in my heart. Wow! And so they tracked it ever since then. It was a, it was a something called a mitral valve prolapse, yep. and a lot of people have it, but it just depends on how severe it gets. And mine was severe, but as long as your heart is stable, they leave it alone. Right. Once it becomes unstable, and that is your heart starts to grow, they have to intervene and go in and do it. So I, four years ago, my heart. Five years ago, my heart started to grow. Four years ago, I went out to the Cleveland Clinic, which is a spectacular, uh, amazing hospital in Ohio. You know, I think it's the best in the world, but that's just one man's opinion. But a a very well-known heart surgeon fixed my heart, so I didn't have to have a replacement valve. He was able to fix it, but his name was Mark Gilanov, and he, he and I stayed in contact and have... You know, we probably write to each other every month or two, and uh, you know, I wanted to write this scene, and I and I talked to him about it, and he said it's absolutely um, uh, feasible. It, you know, it might not be the way I would do it, but there are other people who would do it the way you're describing. I wrote it. He helped me with all of it. He fixed things that were wrong. 
uh, and he's obviously in the acknowledgments. And well, you've just reminded me, Marshall, that I've got to send him a book to thank him uh, because he's he's prominent in it. The funny thing is, in the book, the Mark Gilanov character, who's the surgeon, is six foot. I think he's six six. He's got kind of shoulder length blonde hair. He's kind of rugged looking. He's from Australia. He's kind of just a tough dude. And uh, the Mark Gilanov in real life is about five six, I would say. <laughs> And he's kind of nerdy. He graduated first in his class at Johns Hopkins and at Yale. And, you know, he's <laughs> and he's a wonderful guy and obviously a brilliant surgeon. And he saved my life. So that's that one was kind of a little bit different, but it was probably the best research I've ever done on a subject because I kind of experienced a little bit of it, not the way they, you know, luckily they didn't do to me what they did to the person in the book. But they um, a lot of that stuff was similar. So. Well, I'm glad you're doing well, too. And I, it's, it's funny. I was thinking about that. It's like, well, Ben just figured out how to write off his heart surgery. Oh. Off his taxes. Boy. There you go. Well, I didn't even have to. The insurance covered everything. Oh, they did? Well, that, wow. Okay. I'm jealous. It was very, and it was very expensive. Yeah. Um, and uh, now Blue Cross Blue Shield, I, I have to give them credit. They were of Massachusetts. They, they uh, didn't bat an eye. And the... I had also talked to a hospital in Boston, and it was about one-third the price. And they said, do what you want. And, and the reason they said that is because they, you know, they, I'm sure, had seen in different regression analysis the fact that, that the Cleveland Clinic doesn't really make mistakes. And, and so statistically, it was, it was fine for them to, to pay more, and, that, and also they wanted a happy customer. So it was, uh, they were great, and they... Cleveland Clinic was phenomenal, um, but it was it was I was born with it. I, I run every day, and I've I you know I don't have any any big issues in terms of my heart. Um, I but, have other issues, but yeah, uh, no, <laughs> I've never noticed that. Well, the good news is, of course, you're a great dad too, so it gives you, uh, it you gives you a little extra time getting to do probably your favorite job. But speaking of jobs, I mean, you've done a little bit of everything in your career. What caused you one day to wake up and said, you know what, I want to write thrill- thrillers? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I I think, you know, when I was in college at Columbia, I was an English major and did a lot of writing there. And I thought at graduation about doing the, it's somewhat of a cliche, but doing the thing where you move with a few buddies to the village. And, you know, I, you know, I had a friend who wanted to be an actor and I wanted to write and I had another friend who wanted to be a musician. And we talked about that. And, Ultimately, first I was offered the job at the White House, and I was kind of like, even though in retrospect it was a very menial job that most people could have performed, but it, I thought it would look good on my resume and stuff like that. But I, I really wanted to write. Coming out of college, I won the writing prize at Columbia, and at graduation, and so, but I just went that way and all of a sudden as you know Marshall your life gets kind of down the road a little bit I went and worked there and then I was a speechwriter appointed to the Secretary of Energy and then I went to the private sector because I was hired to write speeches for T. Boone Pickens and that brought me into the finance world and I ultimately carved out a career in, in private equity investing and I woke up and I had I met my wife and I had uh, you know we started having kids and I just woke up one day and I think it was New Year's Day one year, Marshall. I think it was in like 2008, almost a decade ago. And I, I had been telling myself the whole time, it'd be like if you didn't pursue your passion of being a great 
um, political cartoonist, right? Right. And and you had just said, God, I want to do this. God, I want to do this. Well, that was, and I used to tell myself every day, you know, I want to write. I want to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And then finally, my wife said, I, you know, I haven't done anything. And she said, well, get up and start writing. And I did, and I wrote really what became the first chapter of Power Down. I just sat down and wrote it. I didn't even know I was going to write a thriller, to be honest with you. And uh, the rest is, and I haven't really stopped writing. And I'm, so I credit my wife with finally kicking me off the, uh, you know, kicking me off the tree stump and getting me working on it. And um, um, and it's it's been great. And I've I still work sometime in private equity. I'm still a, um, at a firm in Boston, but I, you know, I'm, as I tell everyone, I'm probably, I'm by far the least valuable employee at this firm. Um, <laughs> but having helped to, to found the firm, I, you know, they can't exactly fire me. So, um, um, but I, you know, I, so I'm spending a lot of time writing and I'm, I am now ramping up to put out two books a year. I'm going to start a separate series so I'm going to put out a Dewey Andreas book every year, and then I'm going. I'm starting a new series that will be a domestic-focused thriller series, and will feature Rob Tacoma, who, if you're reading First Strike, that's right, the former running. Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. Exactly, he's a former Navy SEAL. He's kind of a young. He's kind of Dewey's younger brother. He's very different. He's kind of a frat boy, um, and a little bit immature, but he is also a very talented uh, operator with a good heart, and and I think you know fans. I think people are gonna. I think readers are gonna like it, and I think it's really gonna be focused around domestic issues, in particular uh, the Russian mafia. Uh, so I think it'll be fun. Um, that would be great. I'm looking forward to that too. And, and of course, you do a lot of writing when you're when you're up at your place in Maine, right? That's right. In yeah. fact, I'm I'm sitting on the deck, and it's perfectly sunny i think it's about 75 degrees out and i'm looking out in the ocean right now i drag the phone out here <laughs> and uh so that that's not always how it happens by the way i mean we spent all weekend in a, in a big you know as they say the fog was as thick as pea soup and it was raining all weekend so it's not always nice up here but today is just spectacular i would say call me back in the winter when it's like the shining up there but um you know, right now it's seventy-five degrees here inside the studio, but one hundred and nine really? outside. So, oh my gosh, really? No, it's not one hundred and nine, but it's probably in the nineties. It's pretty hot. So. Well, you know, my I was on my book tour last week, and I was down in uh, in uh, Phoenix or Scottsdale. It was one hundred and twelve. No, it was no, brutal. Uh, no, I, I I'd love to visit there for about ten minutes, and then I'd come home. So it was awful. Yeah, definitely. Ben, I tell you, I appreciate you taking the time. Of course, the book's fantastic. First Strike. What's the next book? Can you give us a little bit of a preview? Sure. And and by the way, Marshall, thank you for having me on. I love oh, no problem. On. It's always good talking to you. I love coming on the show. And uh, uh, the next book is called To Trap the Devil. Okay. And uh, it is about a conspiracy within, at the very highest levels of government, to uh, remove the president, the vice president, the speaker of the house, and take over uh, the government, a group, a, essentially a cabal within the uppermost part of the, sta- of the State Department. All right. And, well, Ben, we we got we to run. We're up against a break. But I just want right, to man. thank you for taking the time out and, and 
Man, congratulations on the book. It's fantastic. Thank you, Marshall. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. All right, good, it's, good it's Ben Coase. Yeah, thanks. It's Ben Coase. You can go to bencoase.com. The book is First Strike. Coming up next, we got Nick Lott to talk about his great, 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 great grandfather, Newton Knight. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Support for Now You're Talking comes from Patty Peck Honda, offering a full line of Honda vehicles to look at and drive. Information at 601-957-3400 or pattypeckhonda.com. I was recently diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma. Those of you who've been listening to the news are probably totally confused about breast cancer and breast cancer screening. What choices exist to detect breast cancer? Is there a right way to fight it? The option that was presented to me by my surgeon was lumpectomy. Learn more in an NPB Southern Remedy documentary special, A Plan to Survive. Thursday night at 7 on MPB TV. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to this. Now you're talking on MPB Think Radio. I want to thank Ben Coase once again for a fantastic interview. Uh, Jay White and I were talking a little bit about how what an underachiever I am, and I better get to work now. Or I mean, everybody. Uh, yeah, no, Columbia, investment banker. He was the campaign manager for Mitt Romney when he ran for governor. He's worked in the White House, you know, and just always decides to start writing best-selling novels. Won the Distinguished Writing Award at Columbia, Columbia. as you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had learned investment banking from T Boone Pickens, yeah. as you do, as you do. I know. <laughs> <laughs> sitting on his porch in Maine right now, right. looking at the ocean. We're sitting here looking at each other. It's not quite the same. I right. don't know. No right. offense or anything. I, no, I thought I had a sparkling life. I know. I just kind of. I need to go get busy. I do have two pieces of paper from Columbia University. They both said I lost the Pulitzer Prize. So that's that's well. I mean, well, I was a finalist. I guess I was that's going to say but, you advanced further in the tournament than a lot of people did. Yeah, and I did get a, like a order from Columbia Records back. You know, when they had the remember when you could sign up for ninety nine records for a yeah, penny? yeah. God, those are good stuff. That was good stuff. All right. Well, in theaters right now. I'll do my segue here. See if I can pull this off. Free State of Jones is out there. And, of course, that is the Matthew McConaughey movie. Um, and we've got a really great guest on, a guy that I actually personally like. He's a pretty nice guy. Nick Lott is on. He's come to find out he's a great, 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 great grandson. And, Nick, I just want to ask you the most important question. Do you really look like Matthew McConaughey? Oh, well, of course. I mean, if anyone's ever seen me, they know that, Marshall. <laughs> exactly. Uh, See, I, I, <laughs> thought, I thought since it was radio, we'd just go ahead and get that out there. So, Nick, thanks for being <laughs> on. It's good. Best. I look my best on radio, but thanks for having me. Good to be on. <laughs> Why do you think I'm on radio? There you go. So uh, it's good to talk to you. Uh, you. You've, of course, seen the movie, right? Right. I've seen the movie. I recommend that uh, folks go out and see it and uh, learn a little bit more about uh, the Civil War. Uh, you know, a lot of folks think that uh, everyone in the South was uh, aligned and united behind the efforts to uh, secede from the Union and, and uh, support and preserve slavery, but... That's not the case. Uh, a lot of folks did not have any uh, vested interest in it. And so 
the movie does a great job of uh, telling the story of New Knight and uh, his community, and also uh, the book, which the movie's based upon, the book by Victorian Bynum, uh, does a great job, uh, digs into a lot of history. Yeah, I had, I had the opportunity to interview Vicki for the television show conversations that I do. And Vicky's fantastic. I mean, she really is just, I mean, and, but she, you know, telling the story and I was down in Laurel uh, interviewing her and so forth. And, you know, you think about Jones County today and of course it's always been kind of a rebellious, you know, uh, place anyway, but it, you know, you think about the the whole underlying thread that runs through that movie was, you know, here they were dying for a cause that they really weren't part of because it was, it was almost like a class thing as much as anything, wasn't it? Absolutely, and uh, the the movie does a good job of, of portraying the the sacrifice that people were making, and uh, like you said, it was not their fight. You know, uh, I remember uh, during one part of the movie, uh, and I think Vicky covers this in the book, where you know they're, they're they're around discussing. Look, now there's a new law has passed in the Confederacy that if you own so many slaves, you don't have to go out and fight, and so. Uh, that's one of the things I think that uh, I wish more of our history books would 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 actually uh, uh, portray and, and and include as we learn about our nation's history is that uh, not everyone was on board, and if you counted the slaves, uh, you would probably have a majority of folks who opposed uh, uh, slavery. It was kind of interesting. I just looked at when I was doing the interview with Vicky. I just was doing a little bit of research, and that part of Mississippi really had the lowest percentage of slaves of any part of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and you know, also, uh, you know, Vicky, I think has said this before that, uh, you know, New Knight was one guy, but there were New Knights that may not have had the the, the team that uh, he had, but there were folks throughout the South who uh, opposed this and uh, wanted to just support their family and have nothing to do with this. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes we glorify that time, we glorify war in general, but it was a really tough time all across the South and anywhere that where the battles were. And, of course, um, that movie does a really good job portraying that. Newton Knight is a very fascinating character in his own rights, even if he wasn't involved in, the, in that part of the Civil War and his whole life and his story. And, and of course, he, he had a big family, um, and you were a part of it. How did you find out that you were actually related to him? Well, I'll tell you what, Marshall, just growing up, uh, we always heard stories of, uh, you know, our relation, uh, our relation to the Newton, uh, the Knight family there. And so, so just a, I'm a Smith County boy. I now live in Jackson, but I'm from Smith County and, um, Smith County is right across the, the so-so is right across the county line there, Jones County, where, uh, Newton and Rachel are buried. And throughout the years, we've always heard stories of how we were related to the Knights and, a lot of our family uh, now live on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and so it traces up through my mom's side uh, and down through the uh, coast where my uh, great-great—make sure I get all these greats right—my great-great-grandmother, Ruby Knight, uh, her father uh, it goes all the way up up, up to uh, Henry Knight and then up to New Knight. And so I'm sorry I don't have all the names <laughs> to give you of how it's traced up. But we've always heard the stories, and I tell you what, just to be honest, a few years ago, I guess it was about two years ago, a cousin of mine called me out of Seattle and said, hey, look, I think someone may be doing a movie about our family. And I was like, who? And so uh, we started looking it up, and I had gotten in touch with uh, Victoria Bonham, and she had written a book some years ago and um, read the book. 
uh, another cousin of mine from the Gulf Coast, Keisha Carter, had uh, helped with some of the research. Uh, Unfortunately, she passed away before the movie was released. Uh, But we begin to learn more about uh, our ancestors and about New Night. And growing up, we didn't really have all of the uh, background on uh, uh, the family. I knew that we were part of the family, but I didn't know that New Knight had done such great things, you know, and that he was as rebellious as he was. It kind of explains some of my life, I believe. I was going <laughs> to say that about you because, I mean, you know, you're not – um, I mean, you're very vocal, obviously. I follow you on Twitter, love your tweets. I think you do a great job with, with a thanks, lot of political thanks. commentary. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you were you were very active when you were at Ole Miss. You were a leader when you were there, and now you're out in the community, and your voice is out there. And you're, you're Republican, but sometimes you don't follow that line. I mean, you you know, that's the thing. And so you feel like that you get that from Newton, right? Right, right. I think that's part of us. My brother uh, and his family went out to see the movie in uh, Virginia, uh, where he lives, and he came back and called my mom, and he was like, I, I think that's why we're so rebellious. Uh, I can see that in, in Need Night there, but uh, absolutely, I think uh, I think it's been passed down the lines uh, over the years, and we're just proud to have uh, to have that story told uh, of the family, and uh, to know that uh, even back then, somebody was sticking up for what's right. That's right, and of course, let's jump to today. You, have, of course, you have an extensive political background. You're very busy and very active. What are some of the things that you're currently working on in the state? Well, I tell you what, I, I try to do just in my personal time is try to unite us. I mean, I, I go around and, and like you, I've talked to several groups uh, and people on both sides of the aisle. I really don't see. You know, I see Mississippi where we are today. It's not a partisan thing. I, I, would, I would hope that we could just get together as people and help move our state forward and move past some of the old battles that we've been uh, fighting and, and look to the future of Mississippi. How do we grow this place and make it a better place for all of us? And so I mainly try to be out there in the community and, and unite people around common goals instead of highlighting uh, the the divisions in our, our community. You know, sometimes you see politicians out there doing that, and I think they try to do that for political gain. But, I mean, you and I both know what we saw 11 years ago. Let me get that right. Yeah, that's right. When Katrina hit, uh, mm-hmm. we truly did come together as a people, and, and and it would be nice if we could kind of pull that off again just without the hurricane. You're right. Uh, and it's, you know, I was here for that, and uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a really uh, devastating time for the state but it was also a time of hope and unity and and like you said it's horrible that sometimes it takes a catastrophe to remind you of what's most important in life and i hope it doesn't take anything else like that i hope that we'll unite here in the state and uh try to uh emphasize and highlight our our best uh characteristics Uh, but we need that type of unity not just here but around the nation so you highly recommend the movie the free state of jones how many stars out of five would you give it I will give it uh, ten stars out of five. Okay. And, uh, and I, <laughs> no bias there. <laughs> uh, no bias there, and I recommend folks go out and see it. You know, it was great, Marshall, to see the old Mississippi flag. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but the old Mississippi flag hanging in the in the background uh, there, on one of the buildings, just to show that you know when people argue that the flag is heritage, it's actually not. I mean, that our state. Uh, uh, has come a long ways, but we've got a long ways to go. And it was great to see that magnolia tree flag there hanging up in the movie. So, do you think you're going to be in the sequel? 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I hope we're not having to fight another civil war. <laughs> that would be a little awkward. So definitely. Nick, thank you for taking the time out to be with us today. It's always good to get to talk to you. Enjoy talking to you, Marshall. Thank you. All right. Nick Lott, who is the great, 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 great grandson of Newt Knight. Good grief. That's my test for the day. Hey, got a question of the day, too. I want to throw that out there real quick because we're going to get into that next question today is this. What's the best way to celebrate someone's life who has passed? You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Two centuries ago, the first American president took office. And next year, the 45th will take office. Follow history in the making. Right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Everywhere you go in the online world, you leave a trail of data. Data about you that someone else can collect and sell to others. Because there are no online privacy laws in the United States, there's no stop sign. There's no go slow sign. The message is anything goes. A look at data brokers and the latest on the Dallas police shootings later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. On this week's Relatively Speaking, we're discussing fetal alcohol spectrum disorders with Kathy Mitchell, president of the National Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome. You might not be aware of the real impact that substance use during pregnancy can have on your child. Kathy will speak from firsthand experience on how it's affected her own life. Join us for Relatively Speaking, Tuesday morning at 9 on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Uh, you know, Jay, I think where we screwed up today, we should have just done a show on Pokemon Go and have Liz <laughs> be the guest host. She knows about it. Uh, she does. She's sitting here just like giving us all the details. She's been doing it since Thursday. And you and I didn't know anything about it till like I mentioned I, it to you. I have seen it, but I, I will admit I have uh, partially, purposely stayed away from it. You're a good man. You're a good man. So, I mean, I can hear you doing a sports show on it now. Uh, if there was uh, some sort of a sports... Yeah. Um, Ole Miss Pokemon versus state Pokemon. And, oh, well, then it's over. And then it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if, if there was a way you could state an Ole Miss some Pokemon... It'd be Pokemon they, War at that yes. point. It'd be excellent. So, I, I tell you, I um, and I think part of my problem was for the last week, I've been completely out of it. You know, my, my, my dad passed away. and What a great guy. And, and, and I'm going to read a little bit of a remembrance of him in just a second. We do have a question of the day, though, and I think it's one that's really lit up social media. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Marshall Ramsey or find me on Facebook. And But the question is this. What's the best way to celebrate someone's life who has passed? I say personally, you you remember who they are and the legacy they lived, and you build on it. And that's what I'm going to try to do to my dad. And I'm going to share this with you real quick, because I think this is uh, who my dad was, and I'd like you to know a little bit about him. His name is Dave Ramsey, and if that name does sound familiar, 
Um, my cousin on the radio is named after my dad. And so his dad and my dad were brothers. So it's Uncle Dave. But anyway, a week ago, I was sitting in the hospital holding my father's hand as he struggled to breathe. I just rolled into Atlanta from Mississippi and was in shock from all the driving and the sensory overload caused by the hospital. Dad had been admitted earlier in the day and hadn't opened his eyes, but I knew I, he knew I was there. I knew he was, he also knew that my oldest sister was there too. She had just gotten back from her vacation. And when he heard our voices, he'd mumble or squeeze our hands. And when my middle sister made it in from out of town, he turned his head slightly toward her voice. He was glad we were with him. Dementia had robbed him of much of his memory. The last couple of years have been really rough on him and our family, but dementia never truly defeated my dad. He still knew his kids. He still loved his wife. And although he struggled with details, the core of who he was still existed. But we weren't there because of the dementia. His kidneys were shutting down, and he had a UTI infection, and he was letting go. The next day, my sisters and I continued to hold his hand after he'd been transferred to hospice. He was transitioning. The peacefulness of the hospice facility caused him to be more calm. I arrived early Tuesday morning to tell him what a good dad he was, what a difference he had meant to the community, and what an amazing life he had had. My dad died on the way he lived, with a purpose. He passed away on his 59th wedding anniversary and was surrounded by his three children. When he took his last breath, I thought of Victor Hugo's quote, to love another person is to see the face of God. It was definitely a God moment. Well, in typical Ramsey fashion, my sisters and I worked hard to execute all the plans my mother, to her credit, had set up. The funeral home was contacted, so was my parents' minister. Everything was set. My sisters and I sat together that night and thought of all the good memories he had, we had and some of the bad ones. My dad never played favorites with us. Yes, he loved us in different ways, but we're very different people. We were remarkably close, and it's my dad's gift to us. Saturday, my sisters and I stood in front of a fairly full church and told everyone what we had learned from our dad. My middle sister spoke first and was elegant and funny. My oldest sister then spoke and it hit it out of the park. I batted clean up and told what lessons I had learned from my dad. When my sons were born, I realized I had no experience with kids, and I fell back on his example on how to be a father. From his teaching uh, me to water ski, my father waterboarded before it was popular, I learned resilience. He'd pull the boat up to me after I'd fallen and drank about half of the Tennessee River and say, it's not how you fall, it's how you get back up. After I had cancer surgery, he made me get out of bed and walk in the neighborhood. As he walked with me, he said, it's not how you fall, it's how you get back up. Make that your story. He taught me that humor is a healing balm. I learned that about giving back to the community, learned about having a quiet faith. See, Dad was a pray-in-the-closet kind of guy. He wasn't flashy, but he tried to be good to others. See, we need more like him in this world, not less. Whenever we'd all, whenever we'd all go out to eat, Dad would announce, that was the best meal I've ever had. My kids joke about that. Heck, I do too. But as we were sitting together the other night after his funeral, I realized I had just had the best meal I had ever had. And it wasn't the food. It was the company. Dad loved his family first. That was the meaning of his success to Dave Ramsey. He lived for family, and he died with them holding his hand. He was the most successful man I've ever known. We live in a world of turmoil. The past week has had violence and brutal killings. People are talking past each other, not to each other. Empathy is not a hashtag. Empathy is understanding. Dad taught me empathy. I sat by his coffin Saturday afternoon as it was about to be lowered into the ground. I saw two motorcycle policemen salute Dad as the flag was folded. I saw graves for people of every race, gender, and nationality. But they all had one thing in common. They were underground. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We're all headed there. 
while it was fun to get on social media, while it's fun to get on social media and scream about our differences, we all have the same fate in store for us. I was blessed to have my dad for 81 years. He was funny, grumpy, wise, kind, loud, and giving. He believed in his son and his crazy dreams. He wasn't perfect, neither am I, but he was perfect for me. As his coffin exited the church at the funeral, the organist played Rocky Top and the crowd sang. Everyone left on an up note. Dad, a UT graduate, would have wanted it that way. That's who he was in life. Thanks, Dad. I celebrate you in life, your life, and I see you again. But until then, I hope I'm half the man you were. So that's great. We got Linda from Port Gibson who would like to answer the question of the day, which is this. How is the best way to celebrate someone's life who passed? Linda, thanks for calling. Yes. Um, my father passed away in March of eighty of uh, 96, and my mother passed away in August of 08. And for the holidays, instead of sitting around being sad, we usually look um, what I focus on, the things that they did that made us happy, like uh, for the 4th of July, homemade ice cream. That, that, that was a given. And I like to do the things of tradition that uh, help me to think about uh, my deceased, uh, my mother and father. That's great. That's great, Linda. I appreciate it. And thank you for the call. Thank you. I appreciate that. We got some online answers here. We got Sandra says memory. Chris says be the person they already thought you were the very best to you. Uh, Rita said it's possible having a gathering of his closest cousins and friends and ask each of them to write their favorite story and bring it with them and then copy those stories, bind them in orange and present them to each grandchild. Perhaps some favorite photos as well from your sisters and you. This is to my dad. Make it an annual thing, his birth date or his death date. I think we'd celebrate the birthday with that. I think he would want that. See, that was the thing because I got up there and I got to tell you, uh, Jay, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I speak a lot. I get in front of crowds. I'm not shy at all. Right. I'm sitting there and dad's sitting right next to me right in the coffin. And I knew if I got too demonstrative or started crying or weeping like that, he would pop out of the coffin and slap me because that, that wasn't who dad was. You know, dad was like a rub it, a little dirt on it kind of guy. You right. know, he wasn't going to get too boohooey or anything. So, um, you know, we had to keep it funny and so forth. And I told a story how I understood how the good Lord was forgiving when, um, the day I decided to try to push the wheelbarrow down between the two cars <laughs> and um, he had just gotten his car painted and I left a pinstripe all the way down oh, the thing. Man. Oh yeah. How he didn't kill me then. I do not know. So he was truly a forgiving man also right. on that. So it got pretty ugly on that, but yeah, it was, I just remember he really honestly um, was f just told great stories. And even the neat thing about it was the day before he passed, my sisters and I were, we're sitting there, you know, we were tired and it was time to go and we need to go get some sleep because we'd been up the hospital for like 18 hours. You know how hospitals are like casinos. You don't never know what time it is. Right. And I just, my sister said, dad, we're going to leave or I'm going to go take a shower. And I said, I'm going to go take a luxurious bath. And even though he wasn't talking, he went, well, I'm not. You could hear him say that even though it was, <laughs> it was like that. It's like, there you go. That, that was dad. I always said, that with his dementia, that the day I lost his sense, that he lost his sense of humor would be the day I truly lost him. Yeah. He never lost his sense of humor. That's good. And uh, so that was definitely something on that, too. We got a couple more really good answers here. Uh, plant a tree. I like that. Include a sign in their memory. 
a memory quilt can be a nice keepsake for future generations. Uh, keep their memory alive by talking about them, retelling the stories. And really, honestly, that's the other thing. My dad will live on in his five grandchildren. So. Yeah, the, plan, the planting a tree. That's that's really cool. I like that. That's pretty good. I wonder what kind yeah. of tree I would be. I think I, would, I think plant kutsu. <laughs> I, want, I, want something, I want something that really makes a difference. Uh, I don't know what you're saying about a person's personality if you, make a, if you plant kudzu in their honor. They're invasive and they choke life out of everything. <laughs> right. that's, I think that's what you're saying. They take over and run everything, and they don't ask you about it. Exactly. No, but they have deep roots, and you can't get rid of them. So. Yeah, but I mean, whatever your favorite tree might be, uh, that's a, that's a pretty good thing if you think about it. Because yeah. depending on where you plant it, you know, d- d- you know, every single day you're going to see that tree, and every single day that's going to remind you of who you planted it for. Yeah, so that could be a really good thing. I think so. That's pretty cool. One, yeah. of the, one of the neat things I got was that my grandmother when she went to Scotland got the Ramsey um, plaid on a blanket yeah i inherited that oh very cool i'm very happy about that so i bet now i'm good on that but yeah we got some other good ideas right here uh planting tree another one right there live your life the best you can i think dad would want me to do that yeah i just hope that you know i can be a cool dad to my kids you know i mean because dad was like he liked to play basketball and was good at baseball and i wasn't good at basketball and i wasn't good at baseball i played football (laughs) but i like to draw basketballs and i like to draw baseballs sure so i mean to him i must have been this like the little foreign object you know, but he truly, he, he came up to me one time after a speech and he said, you're the first person I've ever met that knew what they wanted to do when they were eight years old. Oh, wow. And did it. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. There's something to that. Yeah. Cause he, you know, once again, when I graduated from college and was a janitor, I'm sure he was thrilled about that. So <laughs> <sighs> dad, I apologize for all the frustration I caused you. Hey, we well, there, good- there are very few careers where you walk out of the college doors, you know, into that into that seventy five thousand a year job, right? Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm really encouraging, doctors will tell you this. Yes, I'm encouraging my sons to do that. However, <laughs> right. yeah, they started drawing one day, and I smacked their hands with a ruler. I said, "Stop it!" <laughs> That's the way I do with radio. You <laughs> exactly. Know, we get interns occasionally, and I'm like, "Well, uh, what do you plan on doing?" Well, I'm going to do radio, and I'm like, "Well, have." Have multiple plans. Just make sure you have two or three plans going all at once. I got two words for you. Raymond noodles. Right. <laughs> Enjoy exactly. eating them. They're delicious. <laughs> so definitely on that. I appreciate Ben Coe's coming in. I'm not being on the air with us. Great. Nick a lot as well. Good show. Hey, thanks. We're kicking off July in good spirit. A lot of fun. We're, we're going to do this again next week. Hey, Jay, thanks for running things. Thank you. I, I appreciate being here. Oh, no problem. No problem. Coming up next is Southern Remedy. Fantastic show. You're going to love it. Of course, this is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And, of course, we will be back next Monday. This is Now You're Talking. Have a great week. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. With weak high pressure in place today, we are still going to see some scattered shower and thunderstorm activity. And in uh, the areas that don't see the thunderstorms, the temperatures are going to be pretty brutal.